Good evening, and welcome to GradCast. We've got a great show for you tonight. I am your host. My name is Eamon Chen, and joining me on the other side of the table is my co-host. Hey, Connor. Hi. And as our guest this evening, we have a uh, Master's of Science student from the Faculty of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences. Hello, Lily. Hello. Good evening. Good evening, Lily. So um, in the Faculty of Health and Rehab Sciences, could you tell us about what your specific program is is in? Absolutely. So I am in the stream of health promotion within mm-hmm. the Faculty of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences, which, which also hosts um, uh, health and aging, physical therapy, OT, all those other fun health-related programs. Okay. So when I hear health promotion, I mean, uh, I'm thinking promotion in, in terms of like advertising, mm-hmm. marketing. Is, mm-hmm. is that accurate? It's in there. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what else is in there? For what sure. What does health promotion mean sort of to you uh, as a student in this program? Yeah. So um, there's actually like a, a better definition of health promotion that I can provide from mm-hmm. the World Health Organization. And it's defined as the process of enabling people to increase control over and to improve their health. And I wanted to give that definition because when I say I'm in health promotion, Mm -hmm. I tend to get, I've never heard of that program before or what does that entail, you know? So um, within health promotion, it's meant to determine the extent to which a person possesses the physical, social, and personal resources to identify and achieve personal aspirations, satisfy our needs, and cope with our environments. So sort of it's all about how to help people um, become and stay healthy? Yes. In a way? Yeah. 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 Yes. Quality of life measurements sort of Mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Yeah. And what is your sort of personal specific thesis project in, uh, in this department? So my thesis is focused on exploring how gender, race, place, and culture shapes the uh, mental health experiences, knowledge, and understanding of African, Caribbean, and Black identifying youth in London, Ontario. So all sorts of things here. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I've heard uh, you know, this term before. People have, have told me about the, the social determinants of health. Is that related to your work? Yes. Okay, yeah. can you, like, how so? What does that mean, actually? Mm-hmm. So I can also provide uh, a definition for that. So uh, social determinants of health was conceived uh, within, like, the mid-'70s, and it's the economic and social conditions that shape the health of individuals, communities, and jurisdictions as a whole. So different countries operate on different social determinants of health, but mm-hmm. the ones that Canada uh, recognizes, some examples, are Aboriginal status, income and income distribution, food security and insecurity, uh, race, gender, disability, housing, and education. So by taking into account social determinants of health, you're looking at kind of the systemic reasoning behind Mm -hmm. various factors you see, so causes of symptoms, I guess we could say, instead of just symptoms. Yeah, so uh, within my program, so I was also a a health studies student in my undergraduate years. Mm -hmm. So um, a big example that has been used in our courses to uh, kind of 
help us understand social determinants of health and their magnitude is um, the story called Why is Jason in the Hospital? So this is how it goes. So why is Jason in the hospital? Because he has a bad infection in his leg. But why does he have an infection? Because he has a cut on his leg and it got infected. But why does he have a cut on his leg? Because he was playing in the junkyard next to his apartment building and there was some sharp, jagged steel there that he fell on. But why was he playing in the junkyard? Because his neighborhood is kind of run down. A lot of kids play there and there's no one to supervise them. But why does he live in that neighborhood? Because his parents can't afford a nicer place to live. But why can't his parents afford a nicer place to live? Because his dad is unemployed and his mom is sick. But why is his dad unemployed? Because he doesn't have much education and he can't find a job. But why, but why, but why? And the story goes on. That's, I feel like, such a complicated thing Mm -hmm. to study. It, It doesn't take long before it becomes so hard to get any kind of measurement, I think, out of these things. So mm-hmm. when you are someone who studies this, what strategy are you using? How are you getting your data? How, are, how is your research kind of running off of? Mm-hmm. So um, health promotion does take into account the importance of uh, personal determinants, but they also want to move beyond the focus of individual behavior because it's important to take into account why for example, if we're not looking at mental health, if we want to look at um, uh, behavior surrounding healthy eating or nutrition and um, and weight, which is very popular among health promotion researchers, um, you can't simply ask why someone is overweight or, or obese because they don't care about their health and they just want to eat junk food all the time. Mm-hmm. Taking social determinants into account is in, in a story like that uh, or in an, an, an example like that would recognize that someone who isn't eating as healthy as they could be could be due to uh, food deserts that are th- that they're living in so they mm-hmm. don't have access to fresh produce that is readily available or something that they can't afford because they don't have the income to to afford that nutritious food for themselves or for their families and for example, um, like a, a low-income single mom of three, if she's working overnight shifts and she doesn't have the means or the time to cook nutritious meals for herself and for the kids, she's gonna have to rely on you know fast food or mom and pop store, you know, Seven Eleven. Mm-hmm. It's not yeah. um, it's not possible for everyone and. When you and you have a better idea of why when you take into account these determinants. So, in regards to your particular project, I guess the outcome you're measuring isn't so much just, um, say, the example you were giving was uh, someone's obesity or weight. The Mm -hmm. outcome you're trying to measure is people's experiences with mental health, Mm -hmm. and you're looking into social determinants. So, not necessarily just at this person and everything that you could attribute specifically to them, mm-hmm. but systems in play as well? Yeah, so a theme that's come up in my research uh, that can that overlaps between personal and social determinants is stigma. Right. So there's different levels to stigma. There's self-stigma. That's stigma that you place upon yourself. Um, so in, in regards to mental health, you don't want to be seen as weak. You don't want to be in a vulnerable position 
sharing, um, you know, your innermost thoughts and emotions um, or your mental health challenges, you know. And then there's cultural stigma, um, the stigma that you would face uh, from people within your cultural community. Uh, so that can be families, your family, your peers. And then there's the broader social stigma, which we're seeing an improvement in, you know, there's mental health campaigns, there's Bell Let's Talk, mm -hmm. there's uh, campus-wide initiatives at Western, you know, like there's the Wellness Education Center mm -hmm. that opened uh, in 2016, and I was actually like uh, within the first group of um, peer educators to work there. Mm -hmm. oh, wow. So it was a really good experience. But yeah, just those levels of stigma showing that um, it's a personal determinant to work to change and a social determinant to recognize. So you said for your study, you're looking at mental health in um, the population of African, Caribbean, and, and Black youth. Yes. Uh, can you tell me more about that population? What, why did you choose, you know, this, this demographic? And can you tell me about what goes into the classification of mm. sort of African, Caribbean, and Black? Are, are they overlapping? Are they mm -hmm. different uh, groups? Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I'll probably, I'll just start with like the barriers in literature that okay. I found, which led me to, which also led me to um, focusing on this population. Mm -hmm. So uh, the portrayals of who are affected by mental health issues that we've seen in these um, these national campaigns, mm -hmm. such as Bell Let's Talk, or just commercials advertising that you see to reduce the stigma, or right. you know, yeah. um, they tend to leave out um, racialized groups, uh, or um, they don't have you don't see their faces, and it kind of gives this underlying idea that yes, mental health issues are a universal problem, and any everyone has. Just as they have mental health, mm -hmm. everyone can experience mental health issues. But mental health is also not colorblind. You know, we not every group has the same issues related to service access, to microaggressions that they may experience with service providers. Mm -hmm. um, yes, and then the uh, so then when I was doing my literature review, uh, the vast majority of mental health research that I found on uh, black men, women, and youth was conducted in the United States. So it was mm -hmm. in an American context. And although black people in Canada face similar systemic barriers and challenges in their mental health experiences, the gap, there was a gap in Canadian-based literature. So I, I felt like that we need that context to get, gain a better understanding of the healthcare issues here mm -hmm. for our, our African, Caribbean, and black Canadian people, you know. Um, and then within the mental health research on black people in the United States, it was mainly focused on the African-American or black American experiences. Mm -hmm. And it it often left out voices of other um, black communities within the diaspora. So I didn't see much research on um, on black immigrants okay. within um, the American context of mental health research. Right. And then uh, on top of that, very little is known about the experiences of African Caribbean and Black, or ACB, known as the acronym, mm -hmm. in uh, smaller or medium-sized cities compared to, you know, like larger metropolitan cities like uh, Toronto, if we're looking at a Canadian example. Mm -hmm. um, and this is likely due to 
um, racialized people being in more um, urban, higher population cities um, like Toronto or right. Montreal or in, in, in the states like New York. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think it's important to take into account the ACB youth that live in these smaller cities like London and Kitchener. Like Even when I go to bigger cities um, in the states when I visit family and I tell them where I live, like they often say that they didn't know that there were black people in London, you know, and there's <laughs> there's right. there is that that idea that black people don't live in Canada. Mm-hmm. And right. that's not true, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I wanted to address this gap to ensure that uh, the needs of these young people in small cities like London and Kitchener are understood um, so that their realities are validated and addressed. So how, how does the actual process of your research look? Are you are you doing surveys? Are you doing interviews? So what is it you actually do day to day with the um, population you're interested in learning about? Yeah, so I conducted my data collection last semester. So it was about four months. And my data collection consisted of uh, semi-structured qualitative interviews. So this whole study is qualitative. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I asked them a series of questions, uh, starting off with, um, like, you know, preliminary questions, asking them how long have they lived in London? How do they racially or culturally, um, and as in regards to gender, how do they identify and why they're interested in this research and why they are participating in it? And then it branched off into questions about mental health. Why does mental health, uh, what does it represent to you? What does it mean to you? Uh, and then in regards to gender, race, and culture, how do you think your experiences as a woman, as a man, as a non-binary person, in addition to um, their ethnicity or their race, to, to be inter- like to have an intersectional lens to the study, mm. how, it, how do you think it's shaped your mental health experiences? Um, and then in regards to age, so not many of my participants have accessed mental health services and they gave various reasons such as not knowing where they're located or not feeling like their issues were serious enough to talk to someone. Uh, So for the ones who did access services um, in their high school or on campus, I asked them if their age impacted their ability to access them or to talk to someone. And the reason why I asked them that is because a, uh, a big issue within mental health services in Canada or in Ontario um, is uh, transition, like the transition age in mental health services. So uh, youth services tend to cut off at age 18. Mm. And for youth who turn 18, there's not a smooth transition into adult services. And they're often, um, they often get dropped off like into the, in the mental health system. And um, it's a hard it's a hard process for them to find adult services to meet their needs. So there's initiatives being done to Im- uh, increase that age limit to 25 mm. rather than staying at 18 because, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lily, can you give us uh, like a sense of uh, who your participants are in terms of uh, what's the range of their background? Were you mostly looking and talking to students here in London? Yeah, so in my uh, in my interviews, the majority of my participants were Western students. 
Okay. Uh, and a few were uh, high school students. And I was happy that the uh, Western clubs that I spoke to uh, to recruit participants were mm-hmm. so supportive of my study. But um, one thing that I acknowledged with my supervisor is that mm-hmm. there is a level of privilege that comes with being a Western um you know, undergraduate student because, and it also came out in uh, their answers. So the ones who were able to access services Mm -hmm. or felt comfortable talking about mental health with people, they stated that they just went to the campus psychological services or they went to the Western education, the Western, uh, like the wellness education center. Mm -hmm. And they were just kind of within this Western bubble because everything was just like within you know, within like a building of where they study. Right. Um, So they didn't really reach out or uh, access services outside of the university. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in in regards to the Western students. And then the ones who uh, were high school students, they mainly talked to their guidance counselors or uh, talked to their peers or felt discouraged to reach out to uh, services here because they heard from their classmates who were diagnosed with an illness that mm-hmm. they just did not have a good experience with the mental health system in London. Yeah. So what are some of the sort of most uh, important issues that your participants brought up in terms of uh, mental health and their access to services? Mm-hmm. So one that really stuck out to me was uh, in regards to why she didn't want to reach out. Mm-hmm. Um, was because she was afraid that if she was diagnosed with something, she, like she had more fear of possibly having like a diagnosis confirmed, okay, than hypothesizing that she has an illness or like a mental health issue, because she didn't think she would be prepared to deal with like this acknowledgement that yes, you have depression or you have anxiety, right? Um, which I found really interesting, yeah. Um, and other things regarding access to services. So stigma, which prevented a lot of these uh, participants from reaching out for help, mm-hmm. stigma from their families, okay. um, made a lot of them turn to their faith. And that's something that I expected to come out from the research. Mm-hmm. Um, just knowing, um, like, as, a, as an African woman... Um, religion is uh, is very heavy in our in our cultures, mm-hmm. and when we try to talk about mental health with our parents, or if we're if we express that we are depressed, we are anxious, we are going through something, we're often told just pray, or um, we're made to feel guilty about what we're experiencing. It's like, well, if you relied on God more, if you went to church more, you know, if you prayed more then this wouldn't be happening. Leave your, leave your problems with him, you know. So is there a sense that in, this, in these communities, sort of faith and religion are sort of used um, as means to treat mental illness instead of mm-hmm. things like uh, medical services mm-hmm. or therapy services? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. I'm also interested in the, going, going back one example, the example you gave of somebody who might not want to seek out uh, mental health services out of a fear of this confirmation yep. that they are, in fact. Mm-hmm. 
I'm I'm interested because uh, an intuition might be that that is a reason people do seek out mental health services yeah. is because they want that confirmation. They want it to be confirmed to them, um, especially surrounding certain forms of stigma that might say, you know, this this problem isn't actually real. This yeah. problem isn't isn't a real thing. It's something that you've just invented. Mm-hmm. But I, I think the the idea of confirmation is a is a way to to, to counter that stigma. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think that's interesting that um, two different polar opposites can be true in the yeah. same study. Mm-hmm. Do you think that people are seeking out these services to look for confirmation uh, in kind of the opposite motivation to someone who is avoiding those services because of a fear of confirmation? I think so. Um and with the younger participants that I interviewed, they expressed that they were looking forward to um, to not being 18, like to, mm. to, to like to, mm. to getting older because they felt like when they were in um, in the, in these services with a health professional, that their parents would not be called on, I guess, and that okay. they would be looked at as an adult and treated as an independent person. Um, so I, there were, with the exception of that one uh, person, I identified with them. And, and I, um, when I had my own experiences with anxiety during my undergrad years, mm-hmm. and I didn't have the mental health literacy that I think is important for, uh, for this population to, uh, to learn, I needed an answer to what I was experiencing. Because it's already isolating to go through what you're going through and not be able to talk to someone. Mm-hmm. And I felt like with talking to someone, um, like with the health professional um, at the psychological services in a confidential, non-judgmental space that wouldn't get back to, you know, my family members. Right. I would have my symptoms identified and, um, and validated and explain that, yes, this is what it means and this these are the strategies to go about reducing those symptoms so was your personal experience uh, with mental health one of the um, sort of motivating factors for you taking on this project Mm -hmm. yeah so uh, when I was in my uh, fourth year I was experiencing a lot of anxiety because I just kind of felt the pressure of you know like the social like the ladder of expectations especially mm-hmm. um you know gender-based expectations family expectations my own expectations of uh when i wanted to graduate what i wanted to do and then realizing that what i intended on doing was not what i wanted to do anymore just because mm. you know health studies kind of opened my eyes to these inequities that influence our health and it's just more than you know like what I said it's more than just individual behaviors so when I realized all of these things and that I probably needed more time to figure out what I wanted to do with my life I was really afraid to you know to let my family know and to kind of tell friends that I I'm not where I want to be but it's not because of a bad thing it's just I I have a different plan now you know and I had to talk to someone and I talked to that person um, for about six months 
because I also just wanted to unload on all of my anxiety from other social situations. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and it wasn't until I started talking more about my experiences with this counselor uh, to my friends who are also uh, racialized women mm-hmm. and hearing uh, not not all African or Caribbean or black, just women of color mm-hmm. um, and hearing their negative experiences and how their stories and um, their challenges were kind of attached to their identity and like stereotypes of who they were and I was like I was I was shocked just because that's not the experience that I had and for many of them that was their last appointment with that person and they just said you know like this was a very vulnerable thing for me to go through and I don't want to go through this um I don't want to go through this feeling again of either being victimized or you know dehumanized I guess Mm -hmm. and so then it just made me think like how many other people who I don't know have stopped getting the mental health treatment and counseling they deserve because of who they what they look like great so do you expect then to um that your work is once you're finished will help inform better policy better um provision of mental health services better uh, i guess promotion Mm -hmm. of uh resources and awareness of mental health issues yeah i'm hoping yeah um i was able to reach out to really awesome like local agencies here one being like youth opportunities unlimited Mm -hmm. and there are many youth who access those programs, many who are racialized, and I had a participant who actually heard about my study through YOU. So I want to be able to present my findings to agencies like YOU and other cultural um, and health-related or, uh, organizations and centers in London, as well as health professionals who work in the hospitals here to help them understand that there's this population who isn't getting help because of these reasons. And if you, you know, adopt a more anti-oppressive framework, uh, intersectional lens in the help that you provide, then you might see a difference not only in the people who come to you, but in the popul- in the mental health of the population in London. Wow, Lily, thanks very much uh, for coming on to GradCast today to talk about your work and we wish you all the best in the future and and we really I I really do hope that you know this does lead to some changes in you know how mental health is seen and and how the services are implemented thank you so much thanks for doing this work thank you for having me all right well that was your weekly GradCast we are the official radio and podcast show of the Society of Graduate Students here at the University of Western Ontario. Our guest today has been Lily Yosef, and I am Milan Chen with Connor Trader. You can subscribe to GradCast on Apple, iTunes, on Google Play. We are also on SoundCloud and Spotify, and you can access our archives from our website go to www.gradcast.ca. If you'd like to get in touch with us, if you'd like to join the committee, make the show, or if you'd like to come on and talk about your own work, you can drop us a line uh, via email at gradcast 
radio at gmail.com. Thank you and stay frosty. The Gradcast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.